Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. This week, we have some stories of a new kind of outbreak. Dare I say it? Sanity is breaking out in a few places in uh, on my dashboard, and I thought I would share three stories of sanity breaking out. Uh, one's even in the Supreme Court, and uh, then, of course, maybe not always. Uh, one very surreal, not very sane moment before we launch into going through emails and a discussion of a potpourri of topics touching on uh, some really interesting short news stories and then moving into a deeper dive around dementia. We'll see what we all have time for. So let's start with a uh, practice guideline. And like I said, maybe we are getting a little bit saner. This is a an update from the American Society of anesthesiologists. Uh, And what they've done is they've actually had a sanity attack, and they uh, basically are letting you drink fluids up up until two hours before elective surgery. Now, this is a real shift. In fact, what they are recommending is not that you can, but that you probably should. What they want is carbohydrate-containing clear liquids. And, of course, sugar counts as a carbohydrate. uh, But also complex carbohydrates would be fine until two hours before that elective procedure. So forget about the over, you know, don't have anything to eat or drink in the morning and, you know, nothing after midnight. If you're having your surgery at 2 p.m., you could actually drink uh, sugar water until noon and you would feel much better. And there's evidence that uh, you would actually have uh, a better and faster recovery and a more rapid return to normal. Not surprising, because starving people prior to a procedure, which then gets postponed by an emergency, and then you starve them some more. And then, oh, well, it's too late. Come back tomorrow. Yeah, really a bad idea. The older you are, the worse it is for you. And in fact, I have uh, probably not going to talk about it this time, but there is some new guidelines for fasting. uh, And it's really saying that you need to look at the age of the patient before you recommend even intermittent fasting. So that's a teaser for next week, or maybe the week after. So I guess you'll have to come back and listen then. Uh, Preoperative fasting was a bad idea. By the way, chewing gum, not a problem. Uh, if the person's chewing gum when they roll in, you can still take it out, put it in a Kleenex, and do the surgery. So they didn't think that was a problem. They didn't have enough data to give it, this to us for pediatrics. But uh, in Europe and Canadian guidelines, uh, you can reduce the time to one hour for pediatrics because, you know, you shouldn't starve children either. In healthy adults, clear liquids are emptied in within about 90 minutes. There is nothing left in the stomach to throw up. Therefore, we really don't have to worry about it. Now, maybe if you have a medical condition, uh, maybe a 
a problem with gastric emptying, you might not be able to use these guidelines. Our uh, second example of sanity breaking out is a recent study that uh, came from the uh, data in the uh, from the American Medical Association looking at physician deaths during COVID from March of 2020 through December of 2021. And, you know, this is the best uh, counterfactual to the, oh, masks don't work to prevent COVID stuff that I have seen. And I'm going to share it with you because I think, oh, you might get into an argument uh, with someone sometime about the masks and you should have this tucked into your back pocket. So first of all, there are a lot of doctors out there. So among 786,000 physicians that the AMA knows exist, uh, 4,511 died, and that was about 622 more than was expected. There was a strong age gradient, so if you were between 45 and 64, there were 10 excess deaths, Um, and if you were between 75 and 84, there were 182 excess deaths, and this is deaths per 100,000. That's how we always express things per per unit. That way it normalizes that there might be more physicians between 45 and 64 than between 75 and 84. Uh, non-active physicians, and this I found re- relevant, had the highest rates of excess deaths, and that was 140 per 100,000. Actively practicing physicians providing direct patient care had 27, and physicians not providing direct uh, patient care had 22 per 100,000. And these were all lower than the rate in the general populations. One of the things that this shows is that the actively practicing doctors actually did really well, better than the general population, yet they were being exposed to COVID in their clinics and in their hospitals. But what was different? Well, I'll tell you, I wore my mask. I didn't fart around. I wore my mask during COVID and particularly uh, through December of 2021. And I wore my mask when I was in a crowded situation outside of the hospital. But think about the workplace. Think about if everybody's practicing mask compliance in the workplace and you didn't get through the door of that place without a mask on in the hospital and they would like people would pointed out to you if your mask was not properly fitting on your face, they'd let you know. There was huge peer pressure in favor of masking. And you know what? Doctors actually, despite having an obviously much higher rate of exposure, had a lower risk of death than the general population. So I think that's a good counterfactual. Our last story of sanity breaking out comes from a case from the Supreme Court, which ruled against Amgen, uh, which had sued Sanofi for infringing Amgen's patent on antibodies that lower LDL cholesterol. Now, let's start with explaining what exactly is going on here. Uh, These are the PSK9 inhibitors. This is a place on a molecule that you block with an antibody. And when you do that, you reduce the amount of cholesterol in the bloodstream, the, particularly the bad cholesterol. So this is a different mechanism than a statin. It doesn't have the CoQ10 problem, for example. And 
it was a big deal when it came out and continues to be a big deal for the treatment of high cholesterol in people who've had heart disease and who are, uh, for whatever reason, unable to take a statin. And there are many people like that. So Amgen was the first to the table with a antibody that did this and then uh, that blocked this PSK9 structure. And then Sanofi came out with one as well. And Amgen sued Sanofi because he said, hey, we patented this place and anything that hits PSK9, any antibody that hits that is under our patent. They, they, they did what's called a genus patent. So anything that fits that molecule, any antibody against it, we don't, you know, we are, have proprietary evidence. We have a proprietary right to charge you for it. And you all don't know how patents work. You have to have, you you have to specify what the thing is, and you have to provide enough information in the patent so that somebody else could, in fact, license it and make the thing or use the thing and create the thing. And they would owe you money. They'd owe you a licensing fee. But they would still be able to make a competing product. That's how generic drugs work. And up until now, the biologicals have had a really interesting legal loophole because the companies could do things like this genus patent and that that would preclude anybody else, even if they had the facilities to make an antibody, from doing it. Uh, That means the drug stays expensive, folks. That means it never goes off patent. And as consumers, we really don't want that to happen. So super interesting uh, that the Supreme Court was unanimous, and I can't think of too many unanimous Supreme Court decisions lately, so that was interesting to me. And what they said, essentially, was given that there is are theoretically thousands of different ant places, the antibodies that could be made to attach to PSK9, and Amgen essentially made 24 of them and said, see, it, this, this is all ours. Uh, the Supreme Court said, no, actually, you would have to make like 500 of them, and test them and show that they worked. And then maybe we'd let you have a genus patent. So this works for biologicals. It works for other drugs. It works also for certain things in tech. Uh, and it's a very, very good thing for the consumer because it's going to make it very hard hard to hold on to your market share forever. And believe me, as companies restrict the competition, they create for themselves a quasi-monopoly. There's a very interesting program that I listened to today about uh, the streaming services and how they're now making movies and how that may actually, in some ways, violate some laws that go way back to like the, to 1948 uh, around the old super uh, movie studio system where the movie studios owned the production facilities, but they also controlled the distribution. So that'll be an interesting lawsuit coming down, uh, not germane to this show. And that, by the way, was a digression. So let's talk about a outbreak of insanity that I was recently brought to my attention. This is from the March 23 issue of the American, the uh, Journal of Family Practice. And it was the alert was about new pneumonia recommendations that had that were published in March. 
let's talk about pneumonia, all right? Pneumonia is not all pneumonia. The pneumonia vaccine goes after pneumococcus or a, a form of streptococcus that has some interesting properties. It has a, a thick capsule around it that makes it hard for the immune system to see it. It's sort of like Harry Potter's invisibility cape as far as the immune system is concerned. So it takes longer for the immune system to figure out there's an pneumonia, which gives the uh, the bug a chance to get its claws in deep and get really rolling in terms of reproducing itself and effectively eating your lungs. So this is a good thing to have a vaccine for it. And for years and years and years, we had 23-valent vaccine. And this was, that's worked for a long time, but uh, over time, different strains emerge and become dominant in the population. They don't mutate as fast as flu, but this, if you are vaccinated against, let's say, strains A and C, and it's fighting for territory with B and with A, B, C, and D, they're all, you know, jockeying for position, and you take down two guys, well, the other two over time are going to become the prevailing circulating versions of the bugs. And that's exactly what happens. So we have new vaccines. And the problem is that we've got too many of them. And we have a crazy situation now. We have uh, at least four, if not five possible situations. I'm going to just read this to you, and I'm going to just use the numbers. I'm going to say P7 and P15 to indicate different vaccines, because otherwise it's just word salad. So for those who've received previously P7, give either P15 or P20. If they'd previously gotten P23, it should be followed by P15 or P20 at least one year later. Adults who have only received P23 should either get either P20 or P15, at least one year after their last P23 dose. When P15 is used in those with a history of P23, it need not be followed by a second dose of P23. Adults who've received P13 only are recommended to receive either a dose of P20, at least one year after the P13 dose, or P23, as previously recommended. Shared clinical decision-making is recommended regarding the administration of P20 for adults greater than 65 who have completed their recommended vaccine series with both P23 and P13, but have not received P15 or P20. If a decision to administer P20 is made, the dose of P20 is recommended at least five years after the last pneumococcal vaccine dose. And I'm not even going to go into the children's recommendations, but... We're supposed to be parsing this and figuring it out, and we do not have a central vaccine repository. The vast majority of my patients do not tell me, cannot tell me when they had or if they had the pneumonia vaccine uh, or when. Uh, The vast majority of them don't always go to the same place for the vaccine. They may go to one pharmacy and then a couple of years later, switch to a different pharmacy and not remember where they got their tetanus. The pharmacies sometimes, but not always, tell me that they gave a vaccine to a patient. This system is so dysfunctional, and it is a prime example of asking the impossible of the physician. This is I'm reading this, and I'm going, how on earth am I supposed to do this? 
even if I had the data, it would be really, really hard to parse this because there's so many if this, then that, if this, then that, but in this case, nope, and oh, yes, and it's going to be, we have to know the interval. This is crazy, okay? And I'm not sure any of this, I want to emphasize this, none of this is actually like science-based, like we know that uh, you should do this one or that one. It's it's kind of seat-of-the-pants stuff, and it's likely to change again and again and again, so just uh, the other day, and what started me off uh, deciding to do this today is I was in a pharmacy picking up a prescription for my husband, and I saw this uh, thing saying, you know, if you've had this pneumofax shot, you need that pneumofax shot. And it was actually incorrect. I'm not going to say which pharmacy chain it was, but the point is, they didn't have, they, they had it wrong. I had just read this uh, recently, and I went back and checked, and it's like, oh, great. So the advice on the little piece of paper that's sitting up there on at the patient window that has probably been up there for a while, and it's not like the pharmacy staff is reading it, so they may not even remember that it's there. So yet again, more misinformation, and all we really need is to change the privacy laws so that people can log in people as in professionals with licenses to a site where your logins are tracked and get this data. How how crazy is it that I can't get vaccine data easily and readily uh, for my patients when we're pushing vaccines as a social policy as hard as we are? How about throwing a little sanity into this stew? Please, I really could use some. So let's move to some emails. Um, this from Mark in Seattle. Uh, nifty, nifty wearable health gadget. Um, I thought this was interesting and wonder what your thoughts are for a continuous monitor for C-reactive protein where like the, something like the continuous glucose monitoring trending data that is contextual will help guide us to better health. I'm guessing it will need many studies to tickle meaning out of trending patterns. And then he sent me a YouTube. Mark, Interesting concept. Please don't send me YouTubes. I'm a, I'm a speed reader. When you, If you want me to do something, and I'm speaking to my broader audience, send me a link to something I can read, because I can read way, way faster than I can watch. And time is, of course, of the essence when you're juggling as many balls in the air as I am. So uh, now getting back to your question. C-reactive protein is a very labile molecule. It's made by the liver. It goes up in infection. It goes up in uh, other forms of inflammation. And it goes up when you're under stress. So there would be multiple reasons for it to go up. And I have a feeling this is going to be like gazing into your belly button a little bit. Because there's not much you can do behaviorally about it except freak out and raise it by stressing about it. In the case of the continuous glucose monitor, completely different situation. I love this because you get feedback about what you just put in your mouth with a continuous glucose monitor. And when I can get a patient to wear one and they can truly face what's going on to their blood sugar when they go out for pizza and ice cream and maybe a couple of beers, that's a normal human behavior, but it may be a very self-destructive behavior. And if you're going to do self-destructive behaviors, 
go you, but let's not put our head in the sand and not acknowledge that we're doing a self-destructive behavior. And so given that half the United States adult population is flirting with diabetes at the moment um, and obesity, we don't even need to get into uh, the obesity data. I know you know it. Uh, getting that feedback it gives you something actionable. And I don't think that this other does. I've had also a problem with lay people. Uh, and I will add, especially engineers, which I find interesting. Uh, I think it's because they're such mechanical thinkers. But uh, the Apple Watch, which was supposed to be able to tell you if you were having arrhythmia. Uh, I've had patients really stress out because their Apple Watch or their uh, smart watch of a different brand, I don't want to single out Apple here, told them that they had a a rapid tachycardia of 189. And they're like, I had a tachycardia of 189. And I'm like, no, you didn't. The device had to have not measured your pulse correctly. Now, as a person who's got a low blood pressure, I will tell you, those devices often don't measure my pulse correctly. As a person who knows how to take my pulse, I'm certain of it. And even the oxygen monitors depend a lot on blood flow. Uh, I was co- running on a cold morning, and I came inside and uh, put my oxygen monitor on just for kicks. I was trying for my pulse. The oxygen monitor told me that my oxygen was 60, and in my finger, it probably was because it was cold, and the blood flow to my fingers was reduced, and my fingers were cool. Yes, indeed. But imagine if you were not so sophisticated and you saw your oxygen was 60 and it was in the first six months of COVID, you'd be, oh my God, I've got COVID. I'm, I, I don't want to go to the ER. You, or you'd go to the ER thinking you had it. And this, when we didn't have testing, uh, we, we got fooled by those oxygen monitors quite a bit. Furthermore, you probably remember when I talked about how the oxygen monitors don't work well for people who have higher melatonin, melanin content and darker skin because it's really go- it's a color sensor. So uh, maybe as a research tool, as part of the continuous tracking that we're starting to do, uh, I think we might be able to identify individuals who inflame easily and remained inflamed longer. Let's suppose a person uh, gets a cold and their CRP goes up to, well, let's pick something reasonable. It goes from, 2 to 38 while they've got the cold. But then it doesn't go down quickly. They might take two or three weeks for it to go back to normal, whereas the average wild-type human uh, with a cold might drop down by the time to- with their symptoms and get back to a normal range much more quickly. It would be interesting to know that. It would be interesting to pick out those individuals who had persistent or prolonged inflammation because we know that's going to shorten their life. And as a functional medicine doctor, I might take that individual and say, all right, we're doing green tea extract and curcumin and how much omega-3 fatty acids are you eating? And try to hit that person with multiple anti-inflammatory things and see whether that lowered the duration of time that they stayed inflamed. I postulate that it probably would, but again, it would be a great research tool for establishing that and possibly for identifying high-risk individuals. So I wouldn't throw it out as an idea, but I don't think that the product as a consumer item 
is a good idea. I think it would be much better to uh, let this be along the lines of a Holter monitor, right? You put that on someone who's having palpitations to figure out, okay, you've got palpitations. Are they dangerous or should you just ignore them? And that's where a Holter monitor can be very useful. Uh, that's my long answer to you. Let's go now to another email, this one from Ellen in Sausalito. Ellen wants to know treatment options for osteoporosis. Actually, we have two osteoporosis questions, one from a woman and one from a man. Ellen first. Um, 60-year-old, very healthy woman, just diagnosed with osteoporosis. Lumbar spine T-score is minus 3.0. Lower hip femoral neck is minus 2.6. Her doctor recommends weekly dose of Fosamax or annual injection of Reclass. She's hesitant to do either one. Are these treatment options safe and are they the only... Uh, are these treatment options safe and are they the only solution or is it possible to stop the progression of bone loss by natural means like diet and etc well first of all ellen let me tell you that a femoral neck t-score of minus 2.6 is exactly two tenths of a point from uh, a quote-unquote osteopenia score so you're just over the border and the best thing to do in this circumstance, is to get yourself a FRAX score, F-R-A-X. There are multiple tools online that will provide you with this. And what the FRAX does is it gives you your risk of a major osteoporotic fracture or the risk of the hip fracture, and it's partially based on age. So, for example, I'm going to look up, I'm going to look at the FRAX chart right here that I saved in my phone, and if you are uh, 90 years old, your uh, fracture risk is uh, is very high. It, it you've got uh, a 10 year probability at 90 just on the basis of being 90. You've got a 25 percent 10 year probability of a major osteoporotic fracture. You, your treatable line uh, is you've got a 20%, and that's based on your age, right? Now, when you're 70 and above, it's a flat line, but as you get younger and you're 60, uh, your 10-year probability of a major osteoporotic fracture is quite a bit lower. And what you have to do is uh, look at your... FRAX score. And you go to either, the you, if you just put FRAX, F-R-A-X score in your browser, you'll see the AmericanBoneHealth.org website, and you'll see the University of Sheffield, who invented this. I always go there because it doesn't have any cookies and doesn't have any ads. Uh, and they never write back. I'm not sure if AmericanBoneHealth.org isn't going to hit you up for a donation, but I don't know for sure. Anyway, put your numbers in. There's going to be other questions like, have you used steroids? Are you likely to need them again? Uh, Your family history is really important. Uh, Race is also an issue. Certain ethnic groups are more likely to have certain uh, to have fractures and certain kinds of fractures. Asians, for example, are more likely to have an atypical fracture uh, of the femur when they use these bisphosphonates agents. That isn't necessarily a reason not to take them because Asian women do have a high risk of breaking their hip. But 
there's a lot of other things, and family history is also important. So the FRAC score factors in all of these things. Did you smoke? Another one. And then it gives you your risk. If you are your the thresholds that we generally use for treatment is a 3% 10-year risk of a fr- hip fracture or a 20% risk of a quote-unquote major osteoporotic fracture, which is actually less important than a hip fracture. Hip fractures are very disabling. You require major surgery. People die from major surgery. So it's a big deal to, to it's a much bigger deal uh, from a life expectancy standpoint to break a hip than it is to have a, a vertebral collapse. Not that vertebral collapses are fun. They can be painful and they cause you to lose height and they can impair if you get a bunch of them in a row in your um, thoracic vertebrae, they can interfere with your lung function. So I'm not trivializing spinal osteoporosis, but what I am saying, get the score and make your decision about treatment. Your doctor is being, your doctor's looking at this and they're, and they're not thinking statistics. I don't think you come anywhere near to needing treatment, but I don't have this thing in my head and I didn't have time. I didn't have the data to run your other information. It depends on which machine you use and various other things. Uh, but it's a very, very good test. And when people come in wanting a consultation about osteoporosis, I have I sit there in the office and we do a FRAC score together, and then we decide if treatment is indicated. In your case, I doubt it. Uh, I think your doctor is treating his or her own concerns about being sued for not treating you and their own perhaps less nuanced understanding and possibly the fact that their schedule is too tight for them to have this discussion with you and that the added value, since they don't presume this, they presume this drug does not have any downside, the added value is good. Yeah. All drugs have a certain amount of downside and this one we've talked about enough. I'm not going to go over it. David from Massachusetts also has a question. Uh, I'm looking for advice, David writes, on calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin K supplementation. I'm a 69-year-old active man, still working as a carpenter and playing volleyball for three to four hours twice a week. Good weight-bearing exercise, David. After being diagnosed with a prostate that was uh, with prostate cancer, which was removed five years ago, I've been on Casadex on and off since. I'm also taking high-dose proton pump inhibitors to deal with gastritis. Both of these treatments have given me osteopenia, uh, low value of the hip with a T-score of minus 2.0. I've been taking 5,000 units of vitamin D. That's given me a, le- a level of 69 nanograms per ml, and that, uh, David, is adequate. A PET scan showed one of my coronary arteries is having calcification, which scared me away from taking calcium. I've been listening to you on the Internet for years. Thanks, Dr. Don, for giving so much from David in Massachusetts. Well, David, a couple of other factors that we need to to look at in terms of your advice, and we'll talk a little bit about that Casodex drug. Um, the, The generic name of that drug is bicalutamide. And it is an anti-androgen. It binds to the testosterone receptors inside a cell. And, of course, when it's doing that in the cells of your bones, you might think, well, what effect would that have on uh, my bones? Would it cause osteoporosis? And I found a lot of mixed 
messages on that. I found some sites that said, well, you know, its effect is actually to raise estrogen. And there, I found some that said, no, it actually has been associated with uh, a more rapid development of osteoporosis. And I'm presuming that's why you have a bone scan anyway, because your uh, your doctor is playing it safe and getting a bone scan on the, on the guy with prostate cancer and making sure uh, that this drug isn't causing problems. The first thing we need to do is talk about those high-dose proton pump inhibitors. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what calcium means when it's in an artery and uh, how to safely manage your issues. And you're right, vitamin K is important. Uh, But I want to start with the proton pump inhibitors. The calcium needs acid to dissociate so that it can be absorbed. And this is true of dietary calcium, maybe even more true of dietary calcium than calcium supplements, depending upon how your calcium supplement is made and what calcium salt you're taking. Uh, Chewable, for example, or liquid versus a pill. Uh, But proton pump inhibitors will mess with all calcium absorption. And one of the tricks you can use is to take your calcium with, say, some apple cider vinegar or betaine hydrochloride, which is hydrochloric acid in a capsule, but if you've got gastritis, my question is, why do, you st- why do you have persistent gastritis that you need to stay on PPIs? And have you been on them so long now that you're sort of trapped in a loop that you get symptoms of excess stomach acid uh, when you stop taking the drugs and you don't know how to get off of them? So uh, if you send, it, I will send you a link. I, I will send you a little thing I wrote up maybe 20 years ago. And yeah, it's pretty primitive looking, not posh, but it's got the information there. And it essentially says, here's how you can get off of your proton pump inhibitors and still manage your occasional gastritis. And But you have to taper, though, because you're going to make extra acid. You're going to have rebound hyperacidity as you come off the drug. So you're going to need to take a different drug, like an H2 blocker. And you're going to need to do it carefully. And there are a number of things, a number of tricks that uh, are contained in that little handout. So uh, you would want even more than taking vitamin K. Uh, You'd you'd want to absorb your dietary calcium. So it would be great to get off the PPIs if at all possible. Uh, In terms of how much should you take calcium when you've got calcium in the arteries or at one artery, uh, yes, you should. But you want to be sure that it doesn't get added to your arteries, and that's where the vitamin K comes in. So I recommend a dose of vitamin K of at least 150 to 200 micrograms of MK7 through MK9, and that's a subpart of vitamin K2. So you have to really read the labels and Contact the company if you find a good deal and it doesn't tell you what that it's got MK7 in it. It probably doesn't. It probably has MK4, which isn't nearly as good at keeping the calcium out of your arteries. So we have to make sure you get the right stuff. How much do you need? 200 micrograms, probably a good place, uh, probably a good amount. Can you overdose on vitamin K? Nobody ever has. And it does not make you more likely to clot. It is there, I see this all the time in the preoperative orders telling people don't take any vitamin K. It does not make you 
less likely to clot unless you are already taking a drug that prevents vitamin K from working. Vitamin K is, will, people who take warfarin or coumadin will need to be careful with vitamin K supplementation because it can reverse that effect. But if you have atrial fibrillation and you are on a factor 10A inhibitor, you don't have to worry about it. It's perfectly fine to take your Eliquis and your vitamin K. You can even take them together. They can have a party in the stomach. It's fine. How much calcium? Eh, I usually go with about 500 milligrams split in two doses, uh, particularly for you because you're going to be on something that lowers acid. And by all means, take it with some apple cider vinegar, you know, a tablespoon of that if you can choke it down, or uh, lemon juice would be good. Uh, eat an orange with it, something like that. But you want it and acid to be in the stomach at the same time. And I do recommend a chewable or a liquid calcium for preference because I don't know about you, but I tend to gobble my supplements. Uh, it's and I don't really chew a chewable calcium. At least you know you you keep chewing until it's little fragments, and that's probably a better uh, solution for you. And of course, stop drinking. If you drink, alcohol is the thing that causes osteoporosis in men, and it is a thing. So uh, I'm glad you're working. I'm glad you're playing volleyball. But if you're drinking daily or even have like the weekend binge, you really need to rethink that for lots of reasons. Let's do some news. We talked a little bit earlier in the program about SCOTUS and drug uh availability. Well, there is a major shortage of generic drugs that are used to treat cancers. And doctors are having in this country to ration care. They're actually, uh, for two cancer drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, platinum-based agents, they're used to treat breast, cervical, bladder, ovarian, lung, testicular. We are really in a, in a bind here. And it reminds me of the formula problem. And here's, uh, doctors are giving people 80% of the optimal dose of the, these chemotherapy agents. And there, there have been some cases where they, were, they only have enough to give 60% to the patients. Now that gives the cancer, it's just like with not finishing your course of antibiotics, it gives the cancer a chance to survive that's a bit more resistant. And as the cancer cells grow so rapidly, they mutate rapidly. They vary. The generations vary, and some of them may mutate their way out of being vulnerable or mutate a little bit out of being vulnerable. If that one gets to survive, and then it, it because it isn't killed by the drug, well, then it gets to mutate some more, maybe becoming fully resistant. This is a very, very bad idea, and it's super uh, important. Now, how did this happen? Well, Catch-22, really, just like with the formulas, the FDA does do assessments of people uh, who are making drugs that are sold in the United States. And last November, they went to the Intus pharmaceutical plant near um, Ahmedabad in India, and this makes more than half of the U.S. supply of both these drugs. And they found, quote, shocking lapses in quality control. So the company closed the plant. Now, half of the so half of the supply just dried up. And, you know, cancer, time is of the essence. So 
we've got to stop giving ourselves just one source of generic agents. And right now there's a push, and I would love it if you would write to um, your congressman about this, because we, we should give government subsidies to make generics manufacturing profitable in the United States. There's, uh, there's a high cost to low-cost drugs, and this is an example of that. This is an ex- well. This is kind of a health issue, and it's just too cool not to uh, describe. The giant African land snail has been spotted near Fort Lauderdale uh, in Florida. This is a banana-sized snail. I mean, think your big banana slug with a shell, and it would fit in the palm of your hand, uh, barely, but uh, it would definitely be going up to the second or third joint from your wrist to the second or third joint of your finger. So this is a big guy. And these animals eat everything. They'll eat the stucco on your house, 500 different plant species. So they're awful when they get into for- farms and they carry diseases. Salmonella, yes, uh, a, a type of worm that can cause meningitis. And so Broward County is currently under snail quarantine, which means nobody can move soil compost or building materials or snails in and out of the affected area. These snails are endemic in Hawaii, but they can be eradicated if they're caught. And this is probably also a weather issue as well as just a trade issue. But I, uh, I'm looking at this picture of this giant snail and just thinking what a terrible mess it would make if you stepped on it. Honestly, that was my first thought. Now, I traveled uh, about this time last year. I haven't traveled uh, recently, but I traveled uh, over through Australia on my way, or above the Australian skies, I should say. And boy, jet lag is really difficult when you fly on these long-haul, non-stop services. So New York and London to Sydney is 22 hours. So the Qantas Airline Company decided, hmm, I wonder if we can help our our clients do a little bit better on this long flight. So they they had volunteers wear biometric monitors, and they timed the cabin lighting levels and the in-flight meals to align with the internal body clock of people from the place. So either London or New York or Sydney, depending on the direction they were headed. Uh, And they found that jet lag was much better. And they tested cognitive performance two days after the flight. And it showed better cognitive performance in those who'd had the cabin lighting and the in-flight meals timed to their internal body clock. And it wasn't just the timing of the meals, but the ingredients. So the company re- discovered that if they wanted to wake people up or stay awake, they should give them chili, chocolate, and caffeine. And if they wanted them to nod up, they should give them foods rich in tryptophan, right, which is a, the core amino acid skeleton of uh, serotonin, uh, the turkey, the, the Thanksgiving turkey drowse, right? Uh, So dairy, breads, chicken, and turkey. And this is the first time that an airline has actually done this kind of research. But it is smart. It is really smart that they're doing that. And very exciting to 
uh, again, I guess you could call that uh, using a little bit of sanity breaking out. So some more good news. Farming pesticide banned, and this is a um, pesticide that has been around for a long time. It's called chlorpyrifos, and it's been sprayed on strawberries, apples, citrus, broccoli, and corn. It's been linked to a host of issues in children, and particularly if I think about uh, the strawberry field near uh, near a school, right? Kids are shown to have reduced IQ, more attention deficit disorder, loss of working memory. Uh, Farm workers or unions have been campaigning to ban this thing for years. Uh, And the APA was considering a ban, but then the Trump administration came along and said, no, 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 there's not enough evidence. So in six months, this, first of all, the food will no longer be tainted with this pesticide and it'll finally be out of our fruits and vegetables. So that's a very good thing. And another opportunity for sanity to break out is in the case of Parkinson's disease. Uh, and researchers at my old uh, alma mater, UCLA, and researchers at Harvard have identified 10 pesticides that significantly damaged neurons implicated in the development of Parkinson's disease. And they used a novel uh, pairing of epidemiology and toxicity screening, and it leveraged California's extensive pesticide use database. Uh, Researchers at UCLA and Harvard were able to identify 10 pesticides that were directly toxic to dopaminergic neurons. And these are the neurons that are important for coordinated movement And losing these neurons in the substantia nigra portion of the brain is the hallmark of Parkinson's disease. And the researchers also found that if you used two of these 10 pesticides, typically used in combination in cotton farming, they were far more toxic in combination than they were in single. And they looked at exposure exposure histories going back decade, in Central Valley patients with Parkinson's disease, and they were able, using that and surveys, to determine long-term exposure. And then they tested each pesticide individually, uh, and they went through that sort of untargeted screen, found 53 pesticides, uh, and all still in use. And then they went looking for dopaminergic toxicity. And the the worst ones are, and I'm going to read them to you, dicofol, endosulfan, Naled and propargite, and there's three herbicides and three fungicides. One of the fungicides is copper sulfate, which gets applied to a lot of fields in Santa Cruz County. Uh, at least it used to be. If, if it's changed, I didn't get the memo. And diquat, indithol, and trifluran, uh, and these are herbicides. Those may make their way into a garden herbicide near you, so even people who spray any kind of non-organic herbicide may, in fact, be exposing themselves. So now that we've got this data, the next step is going to be to study the epigenetic and the metabolomic features related to exposure and see if we can describe and understand which biological pathways are are being disrupted. I'm hoping that they also take a look at the microbiome because we know that 
that the intestinal microbiome shifts and starts making high levels of a protein called alpha-synuclein because the bacteria make it. That alpha-synuclein climbs up the vagus nerve into the brain, goes to the substantia nigra, where it probably creates the attack on the neurons uh, through the glial cells, the immune cells of the brain. So we were hearing in the previous program, the Talk of the Bay, an ecologist talk about looking at the interconnections between things and that that's how you have to change things is to look at those interconnections. And I couldn't agree more. I think that is exactly what we need to be doing. So let's cover a few stories around dementia. And first one uh, I'm going to share with you uh, is bilingualism side benefit. So a new German a study coming out of Germany found older people who had spoken uh, two or two different languages daily when they were 13 or older had higher scores on language, memory, focus, attention, decision-making than their monolingual peers. And they had 750 people between 59 and 76, and about 60% of them were at memory clinics. So they had both a, no, a quote-unquote normal group and a group that was already experiencing some memory deficit. And then they looked at whether or not they spoke uh, two languages after the age of 13. On all the tasks they completed, such as spelling words backward, following three-part commands, the bilingual subjects did better. And they don't know exactly what's going on, but one theory is that people who switch between two different languages develop neural pathways that make them better switchers. uh, And that those things are associated over the long term with cognitive health. So there might be a protective effect to learning that second language. And certainly I've observed, uh, and in my studies on the Bredesen protocol for Alzheimer's, I've observed the huge benefit of uh, language training in people who are showing early signs of cognitive deficit. And it's hard. Yes, it's like weightlifting. It's hard, but if you do it, your brain gets better. Your your function improves, and we don't have a drug that makes our function improve. I want to emphasize that the we don't have a drug for this. All we have is behavior change, and therapies, and removing toxins. Of course, controlling blood sugar, getting rid of heavy metals. I mean, there's a lot that we can do, but ultimately, there is no pill. And there may never be a pill, and at the moment, there isn't. So the things that you can do are work your brain every day, work your body every day, and eat a, eat a low-starch, low-sugar uh, diet. You know, lots of plants. That Mediterranean diet is the diet that helps your brain. So for people who do have damaged brain... There's a, a new device that's coming out of the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. It's a memory prosthesis, and it involves inserting an electrode deep into the brain. It works by copying what's happening in the hippocampus, which is a little tiny region deep in the brain that's the switchboard for brains, and it helps us form short-term memories, but it directs memories to other regions for long-term storage. And so... 
these researchers at the University of Southern California and other colleagues have been studying this. They put brain electrodes in to understand the electrical patterns of activity that occur when memories are encoded and then use these same electrodes to fire similar patterns. And this is typically done on people who have epilepsy, who already had electrodes implanted in their brains, and so these are pre- this was done for a medical reason, but they also have, you know, essentially a detector in their brains. And so they, they are able to test two versions of this memory prosthesis recently. And the first version... Uh, mimics the patterns of electrical activity across the hippocampus, which occur naturally when each volunteer successfully forms neurons. So it takes the average of these patterns across each individual, and then when they're trying to remember something, it fires off this pattern of electrical stimulation. Kind of like, oh, those first contact science fiction stories where you play the, oh, you know, you play their music back to you, uh, back to them, and they go, oh, do, 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 and we have a little concert. So, uh, yeah, that seems logical because you can entrain the neurologic activity that way. The second one just more closely mimics how the hippocampus actually works. So it, it spreads the memory from one layer to another in exactly the same order because all of these brain structures are onions. They have multiple layers. And so it mimics the patterns of electrical inputs going up through the hypothalamus, and they both seem to really help people who uh, have memory issues. Now, this needs to be personalized, and they saw improvements that uh, from a low of 11% to a high of 54%, and there was a lot of variation, and it had to, uh, the the thing had to be trained to the particular neural impulses of the individual. So my question is, can we do this with transcranial magnetism? Can we do this with cranial, uh, with cranial electrostimulation so that we don't have to drill holes in people's brains? I'm betting that the transcranial um, magnetism is a possibility because it's waves and we can imitate the wave pattern. And boy, is that exciting. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.